Well, it's, it's a common question asked among believers that would have actually made no sense, zero sense, to those who were alive at the writing of the time of the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament alike. It's a question we ask often, but it would have made no sense to them. It's well-intended, but we rarely realize the layers of implications in this question. The question is this, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? If you were to ask Paul, what's the favorite verse, what's your favorite verse that the Holy Spirit inspired? If if you were to ask Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, so which was the hardest verse to write? They would have no idea what you're talking about because there were no verses in the original documents. There were no chapter divisions. Now, please don't misunderstand. I have favorite verses in the Bible. I used to have a favorite verse or two or three or seven or 12 or two dozen. And then I find out that my favorite verse kind of changes every season of life or, or almost every week. Usually it's whatever the next passage we're preaching on is becomes a favorite verse. But when we say, what is your favorite verse? Remember what we're saying. I appreciate this section of this book in the Bible But it wasn't designated as book, chapter, and verse like we have. The Bible was not written with chapters. It wasn't written with verses marked out. The Bible has been organized into manageable sections for thousands of years, however. Jerome, for example, divided the scriptures into smaller sections in the 5th century, calling them pericopes. We still use that word in hermeneutics and homiletics today, a section, a paragraph, pericope. But the chapter divisions we use today are usually credited to a man named Stephen Langton. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 13th century. His chapter divisions were used in the Wycliffe Bible of 1382 and have been used in nearly all versions since. By the way, verse divisions can be traced back even further in Jewish studies. Ben Asher and his family divided the Old Testament into verses around 900, A.D. 900, though other divisions did come after that. Our verse divisions for the New Testament were originated by Robert Estony or Stephanus, who included them in his printing of the Greek New Testament in 1551. That became the basis of our English designation. Ultimately, it was codified in the Geneva Bible of 1560. And those divisions, those books, those uh, chapters, and those verses have been used almost universally ever since. Now, let me say it this way. Chapter divisions and verses, versification, is a grace of God. It is so unspeakably helpful. Can you imagine if we were studying, for example, the book of Ezekiel, and I wanted us to find the same place, and I would have to say, okay, um, we're about three-quarters of the way through uh, and if you get to the Valley of the Bones, take a right. No, no, if you're, how would we find where each other are? Thank God for these chapters and these verses. It seems like oftentimes the only time that we, we really call attention to the versification, as we call it, of the Bible, is when we disagree with it. We say, oh, this chapter division lands in an awkward spot. And sometimes they do. But can I suggest to you that for the most part, these these men got it right. 
very observable reasons to break up the Scriptures by ways to identify them that make sense. The paragraphs and the thoughts are very accurate. In our slow study of the book of Ephesians, we have paused almost every phrase to look into the deep understanding and nuances of these verses. But also after chapter 1, after chapter 2, and after chapter 3, we also stopped to look back at the whole, the whole chapter by itself. I think that helps us, and it also highlights the fact that you, you, you really need to look at the Bible with at least two lenses. The first is like a microscope, a magnifying glass, where you talk about words and prepositions and verbs and subjects and predicates relating to the syntax and the context. And then you zoom out from that to look at the words to the sentence, the sentence to the paragraph, the paragraph to the section, the section to the chapter, the chapter to the book, the book to the testament, until you're looking at the whole. God's word should be examined by looking at every word as well as backing up and looking at every section. And I think it's been profitable. We did this when we studied Romans several years ago. We're doing it in the book of Ephesians. When we finish a chapter to go back after having looked at all the details of it to now go back and, and kind of get a high altitude summary of what we just considered. Wow, does the sufficiency of God's word scream its wonder from every verse, every sentence, every word, and every section. Today, we're going to take a wide-angle lens and look at the whole chapter of Ephesians 4. If you're a guest with us today, we, we spent a lot of sermons going through every little verse of this chapter, but we're going to look at it as one unit this morning. Just backing up before that, for the first three chapters, chapters 1, 2, and 3, we, we looked at what God is doing for us in the gospel, what He's done for us in the gospel. Then in chapter 4, Paul makes a significant transition <coughs> to tell us what now the gospel does through us, how we apply it, what it means, how we live it out. The sufficiency and practicality of the last three chapters has been noted duly by every commentator that I've read. You have to be careful here, though. Some people say, well, the first three chapters are doctrine and the last three chapters are practical application or life. That's true in general, but as we saw for the first three chapters, all of those doctrinal statements have practical, observable, immediate implication and application. And as we'll study in the next three chapters, all the next two chapters, including chapter four, all of the practical implications are rooted in theological truth. Please, please don't ever bifurcate or chop between practical theology and theoretical theology. I just think it's interesting, beginning in chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 4, Paul starts absolutely waylaying us with practical application. Beginning in chapter 4, he starts talking about the character of our hearts and extends through chapter 6. Unity with other believers, living distinctively, differently than unbelievers, as well as distinctively different than we did ourselves when we were unbelievers. Pursuing doctrinal depth and understanding, employing our spiritual gifts, 
We see understanding how to communicate better as well as how to use communication to resolve conflict. We see how to use our language for others' benefits, how to be kind and loving and forgiving, how to imitate God and love others, (coughs) how to fight internal and external sins, how to become spiritually stable, how to walk with the Spirit of God, how to sing with an engaged heart, how to become more faithful as a husband and a wife, faithful spouse, how to become more faithful as a parent to your children, how to become a more faithful child to your parents, how to be a better boss as well as a better employee, how to appropriately fight the devil and demons, as well as how to pray more effectively and efficiently for ourselves and for Christ's ministry. We are in for such an amazing ride of how to live life from the pen of the Apostle Paul. But all of our living is rooted in what we know, what we believe. So before we turn our attention to the final two chapters, chapter 5 and 6, this morning we're going to take a brief look back at chapter (coughs) 4. Specifically, we're going to identify seven theological themes together in our review. These are fast-moving, high-altitude. You've heard them before, but it's all review. Seven theological themes in our review of Ephesians 4. The first is in verses 1 to 2. Faith in Christ demands consequent living. (coughs) Faith in Christ demands consequent living. Paul says in verse 1, Therefore, based on the truth of the gospel he's just explained for three chapters, therefore... I, the prisoner of the Lord. Paul is in prison because of the gospel. But he doesn't say the prisoner of Rome, the prisoner of Nero, the prisoner of the guard who was under his, he he was sitting under. He says, I'm the prisoner of the Lord. Who says that? You can read through the book of Acts and it doesn't say that Paul showed up before any magistrate where the Lord Jesus was sitting on a throne and said, you're now going to prison. But you will find before he sat before magistrates who sent him to prison. Caesarea Philippi, he was sent from there after (laughs) the crime of believing and preaching the resurrection to Rome to go to prison. And that's where he finds himself here. This is under house arrest, which is different than the Mamertine prison he would find himself in at the end of his life from what he wrote to Timothy. I'm the prisoner of the Lord. Listen, in a country where many believers turn up the volume on freedom, Paul's message is that his loss of civic freedom had nothing, had done nothing to hinder his commitment to Christ and faithfulness to ministry. The unwelcome circumstances of being thrown in jail did nothing except change his audience. But he kept preaching. Even a step further, the language that Paul employs in all of his letters is that Jesus is his master, his Lord, and he is Jesus' slave as we are as believers. He offered willing submission of his freedom to Christ. Therefore, he was a prisoner of the Lord, a willing slave of the Lord. And as we've noted in many studies of Paul, and this verse highlights it again, 
Paul had developed the spiritual maturity to see through his trials to find the providence of God at work. Oh, what peace and hope and assurance is in that reality. To be able to look through the trials of the, of the lives we live and find that God is providentially at work. He knows, he cares, he's involved. Paul doesn't complain about his difficult circumstances. He finds faithfulness in them. <laughs> By the way, this is an interesting transition because he says, I implore you, I exhort you, I beg you and I command you to live or to walk. We've looked at that term many times. The word walk is the way they ambulated through life, the way they got around. You had to be very rich to have a horse, you perhaps had a mule or a donkey that was usually what you would put your, your things you were transporting on and rarely ride it. You walked around. You got around by walking. That became a metaphor for living or for life. In fact, you can substitute the word live or life for the word walk. I implore you to live, to walk in a manner worthy, axios in the Greek, of the calling with which you've been called. <clears throat> this word axios is very interesting. It means commensurate. It means equal weight. It was also used to color match. Make sure that your life matches your profession. See to it that what you believe is transported into the way you live. When we put on our clothes, we are mindful of the color combination we are arranging, or at least we should be. Let's say it that way. We try to avoid colors that clash. The same idea is in play here. Paul is saying walk in a way where your life matches your confession. Your living matches your belief. And there should never be a clash between our confession of faith and our practice or our living. That's walking in a manner worthy of it. We connected that with the third commandment where Moses says on behalf of God, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And that doesn't mean cussing or cursing. His take is the word wear. You shall not wear or suppose the name, an association with the Lord your God in a vain way. In other words, if you say you belong to Yahweh, if you say you belong to God, if you say in our context that you belong to Jesus, you should act like it. Let me reach forward and backwards now in number two. <coughs> Secondly, faith in Christ demands constantly living. Second, Christian unity is the responsibility of every believer. Walking in a manner worthy of your calling demonstrates itself in having certain character that manifests in a desire for humility. Excuse me, a desire for unity. Look back at verse two. With all humility making others' lives more important than your own. Gentleness, that means meek and kind and gracious. With patience, that's long-suffering, showing tolerance, that's not jumping on people's sins as soon as you see them, for one another in love. Showing tolerance for one another in love. When we see that word one another, that's a, that's a clue that he's primarily talking about our relationships within the church. That's a one another do this with people in the church, certainly we're this way with those who are unbelievers, but this is primarily aimed at the people in the 
chairs around you. With that attitude, verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Christian unity is the responsibility of every believer. The unity of our church is not just the responsibility of your pastors and your elders. It's not the responsibility only of your care group leaders or your parents. It's everybody's. Everyone's. And I think it's interesting here. He doesn't say generate the unity, but preserve it. There should be an automatic love and unity between believers that we can only sin to break up. It's sin to distract from. Be diligent. Make every effort, is what that means, to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Our unity with each other is the Holy Spirit's unity. And how does it work? In the connective tissue, in the bond of peace. We're glued together with peace. <coughs> By the way, there were three occasions that at least we have a record of. I'm sure there were more than this. There were three occasions in the Gospels where there's an argument that's recorded among the disciples. In all three occasions, you know what the subject was? Who's the greatest? Who's the best? Who's better than the other? And if you go back to Jesus' correction, they actually, this actually happened in Luke 22 where they're still arguing about this at the Last Supper. Jesus is saying, by the way, I'm going to go suffer and die and pay for the sins of the world. And they're saying, okay, great. Where do I get to sit in the kingdom? Who's the greatest, me or him? In the midst of that argument, Jesus said, John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, as we'll see in a minute, is knit together because of our love our care for one another. And it's not just love for the people that you're attracted to. It's especially applied to love for the people who are difficult to be attracted to. Christian unity is a precious treasure that Paul says we are all called to pursue and to protect. We'll see at the end of the chapter, there should be no grudges, no bitterness, no unresolved relationships in Christ's church. There are no enemies in this building between believers. It's our responsibility to pursue it and protect it. But it's not a fluffy, ooey-gooey, rich and chewy kind of fluffy unity. It has a basis. Number three... <coughs> Christian unity is grounded on common theology. This is not just Rodney King theology. Can't we all just get along? It's more than that. It's can we all believe the same things? He gives a, a list of seven common doctrinal commitments on which unity is produced. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called into one hope of your calling, 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Common allegiances to great things override uncommon differences in lesser things. We talked about this. We studied this passage as going to a Chiefs game or a Royals game. It's winter, so we'll say the Chiefs, okay? When you're standing and they're on the five-yard line and it's a few seconds to go and our quarterback is snap the ball, and everyone's cheering for him to score. No one in that moment looks at the person sitting next to them and says, you know, I was wondering if, if you prefer fish or steak. I was wondering if you're a Democrat or Republican. I was wondering, do you like romantic comedies or do you like action movies? You don't ask those questions. Why? Because a common allegiance to a greater reality makes the differences fade into the background. That happens in the church. The most important things about our church, this is a surprise to some people, the most important things about our church are not what make us different than other churches, other true churches, that distinguish us from other bodies. The most important things about our church are the things that we have in common in the gospel. One of the buzzwords that keeps coming up in contemporary evangelicalism is community. Everybody wants community. Look, I I want community. I, I, I want friends and fellowship, and I think that's wonderful. But community, divorced from doctrine, will never be sustained. The Bible has a lot to say about genuine fellowship, authentic unity, real community, but these are different than what most people speak of when they talk about community. In fact, I found that through endless, countless discussions, that when people are clamoring for community, they're expressing their desire to be cared for and close to others, not to believe the same things with a common allegiance to the greatest greatness of the Lord. So he says, look, we have one body, One church, it's the body of Christ. One spirit, one Holy Spirit, we believe in who he is and what he does. One hope, it's the hope of heaven. One Lord, that's Jesus. All three members of the Trinity are in this doctrinal formulation, by the way. One commitment to Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 says, if someone comes to you and preaches another, a different Jesus, may he be accursed. One faith, one articulation of the gospel, common commitment to one baptism. This is not so much water baptism as association with the Lord and the gospel, which manifests itself in obedience in baptism. And then one common commitment to God, which is the Father of all, which means we are a Trinitarian, we are a Trinitarian community who understands that we have a triune God whom we believe in. Christian unity is grounded on common theology. Number four, Christians are repositories of God's grace. This is so encouraging. We are repositories. Storage units. Receivers 
of God's grace. But to each, verse 7, to each one of us, grace was given. Are there any exceptions in that verse? To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. He then quotes Psalm 68 and uses the illustration of when it says, Psalm 68, he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who has descended has himself ascended far above all the heavens so that he might feel all things. That's just a big Long explanation to say he came from heaven to earth in the incarnation. That's the lower parts. He accomplished what God set him out to do, our redemption, living the fullness of the law. And then because of that, like a winner of a war, got all the spoils of the war and can then distribute the wealth to his soldiers. We didn't even fight, but Jesus won the battle for us and then gives gifts to men. He gives grace to us according to the measure of Christ's gift. All of us have been gifted. All of us have been gifted for God's glory and the good of the people around us. We spent some time in this when we were studying this, but do you know how you're gifted by God? How has God uniquely gifted you to serve others in the body of Christ and to make much of his son? You're a repository of God's grace. No exceptions. You are indeed God's gift to the church. So let's act like it. Based on that, how do you employ these gifts? How do you use these gifts? How do you understand these gifts? How do you, how do you go about ministering these gifts? Number five, gifted men shepherd the maturity of the church. <laughs> gifted men shepherd the maturity of the church. Verse 11, and he gave some as apostles, that was the 11 minus 1 and the 11 in Acts chapter 1 plus 1. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, those who would give new revelation from God and would become the New Testament, and some as evangelists who would take the gospel to new places. I think this is, could be translated missionaries, and some as pastor teachers or pastors and teachers, shepherds who use teaching gifts to care for the flock. Why did he give these men? So he gave gifts to everyone, but he specially marked out certain men to do something. What is this something? Verse 12, for the building up, the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. These weren't men intended to be celebrities of the church, They were intended to be the servants of the church to make the church function well and informed for the building up of the body of Christ. Pastors and teachers are still in play today. They're gifted men who have been uniquely set aside by God to teach God's word in a way that's understandable, that's practical, that takes the mud off our eyes so we can see the clarity of God's truth. For what? 
Verse 13. Does this sound familiar? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Our faith should unify us. What we believe has practical implications on how we treat one another. And of the knowledge of the Son of God, it all points back to Him, His sufficiency, His adequacy, His love for us. So what? To a mature man will be mature, stabilized, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That says that we become like Christ as we become mature, we become mature as we become like Christ, his stature, his fullness. Then he talks about this growth a little bit in verse 14. As a result of gifted men teaching us to be equipped so that we're moving into unity and the fullness of understanding that we're imitating Christ, as a result, we are no longer to be children. That's a word for immature. Tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine. How do you define an immature Christian? Spiritually, doctrinally unstable. That's how you define it. Just tricked by every wind of doctrine, every Facebook post, every Twitter tweet, every crazy book. By the trickery of men, by the craftiness, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, this is not just telling the truth, that comes later in the chapter. Speaking the truth, the truth here is the context of equipping theology. Speaking theology in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Doctrine builds us up into him from whom the whole body being fitted together. Oh, remember we studied that? Such an interesting word, fitted together. It's like, when you see someone building a, a fireplace, I witnessed a guy doing this one time. It was one of the most amazing things I witnessed, how quick he could do it. He had a pile of stones, creek stones, and he, he was building this fireplace, and he would put one, and then he would put, pick up two or three pieces and fit and put them juxtaposed to each other. I'll, I'll take that, and I'm going to use this one. He would put it back until by the time he got to the ceiling, this puzzle looked amazing. It was wonderful. That's the same word, fitted together. We're all different, but we're fitted together into the oneness of the body of Christ. Held together by what every joint supplies. Everyone supplies something to the health of the church according to the proper working of each individual part. You cannot be on the bench. There is no bench in God's game. Everyone is on the field. Everyone is in play. Everyone has their jersey on at the same time. According to the proper working of each individual part, it causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Let me say it this way. You're all repositories of grace. We all are. We've been equipped. We've been taught so that we will be mature, not only individually, but mature as a body, which means if our body is lacking anything in its maturity, our church it's because someone is not supplying what every joint supplies, every part supplies. We need you, all of you. There's not a test you pass or a class you go to that makes you needed. We all need each other. Gifted men shepherd maturity, equip ministers so that we can have the measured maturity of Christ. I, we have a group of gifted men, I guess I'm in the rotation, by the way, of these gifted men who uh, get to uh, teach 
Let me, let me say what I've said to you before. It, it is a wonder and a blessing and a burden, a wonderful burden to preach to Mission Road Bible Church because you are so theologically astute, you are so well-equipped from your own studies in the past, none of us can get up here and wing it because you love the truth and you know the truth and it compels and pushes every man who teaches in our context to be prepared. And I'm grateful for that pressure that you apply. Number six, conversion changes a person from the inside out. This is another theological premise. It's a big one, but it is significant. Conversion changing from dark to light, from unbelief to belief, changes a person from the inside out. <clears throat> significant section in verse 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, there's a lot of authority there, that you walk, there's our word again, that you live no longer you used to live this way as the Gentiles also live or walk. Don't act like the Gentiles. What does that mean? Don't live like an unbeliever if you're a believer. That's the point. There's been a conversion. There's been a change. <clears throat> then he goes into what we talked about. We learned that word noetic from the Greek for, word for mind. The noetic effects of the fall affect our thinking, the sinful, our sinful fall of the sinful fall of man affected our thinking first, which led to our actions, which means that the right way to combat that is our thinking as well. We'll see that in a minute. But look at all these thinking terms he uses. <clears throat> Don't walk as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. They don't think rightly. Their worldview is broken. They don't live for the glory of God. They only live for themselves being darkened in their understanding. Now we get a darkening. They don't understand. They're also stained by sin, excluded from the life of God because of the, here's another thinking word, ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. That's the mission control central. That's the thinking and decision port of our whole soul. That's the inside. Then he goes to the outside of the unbeliever. They become callous, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Inside wrong thinking leads to outside wrong living. That's the signature and the biography of an unbeliever. But, verse 20, but you, as a believer, you did not, and then this is a, an amazing phrase, terrible Terrible grammar in the Greek, even worse grammar in the English. But you did not learn Christ in this way. As we studied, there is no parallel in any ancient Greek text to this sentence where we're told to learn a person. But he says, you did not learn Christ in this way, meaning that the curriculum of Christianity is the person of Christ. It's not behavior modification. It's not a social alternative to the world. It's the person of Christ. Oh, did you enjoy what we sang earlier? He is alive. If he is alive, we can learn to have a relationship with him. If indeed, verse 21, you have heard him, that's coming into the understanding of the gospel, learning the gospel, heard him. Not just what he did, but who he is, 
and have been taught in him. That's maturity in the gospel. Just as truth or theology is in Jesus. He's the central focus. Then he switches in verses 22, 23, and 24 to the biblical process of change. Really simple. Not easy, but simple. That in reference to your former manner of life, the old you, the unbelieving you, that you lay aside that person, that self. You lay it aside. You take it off. Which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust, the desires of deceit. All of unbeliever, unbelieving desires lie to you to tell you that you can be satisfied and content in anything and everything but Christ. So we put off the old, verse 23, that you be renewed where? In the spirit of your mind. Doesn't that parallel and make sense? An unbeliever is categorized and, and um, uh, known, described by wrong, bad thinking. Here's how you're renewed, by thinking rightly. And then you put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, verse 24. Created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. You change morally because of Christ. In the end of the chapter, this next theological note will emphasize that. Put it off. Think rightly. Change by putting on new behaviors, new thinking. Have you learned Christ? Is he your curriculum? That leads to number seven, the last theological observation or foundation that we'll look at in this text, this chapter. True change involves putting off and putting on. He explained that from a high altitude, and now he's going to be very specific. Putting off and putting on. Therefore, <coughs> verse 25, laying aside, putting off all falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. Remember I said earlier the truth was referring to doctrine. This is for speaking, talking about be honest, be truthful. For we members of one another. You don't lie to each other, he says. Put aside being false. Put on being truthful. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals, steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word come out of, proceed from your mouth, but only such a communication, only such a word as is good for building up, for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Not only are we repositories of grace, we're speakers of grace. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This is interesting because he says in verse 25, tell the truth. Verses 26 to 27, temper your anger. Verse 28, work to share. Verses 29 to 30, Watch your words. That all is a crescendo that leads to verses 31 to 32 to refashion, recalibrate your relationships. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, 
tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. As we've said over and over in chapter 4, Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord Jesus, is far too powerful, far too amazing, far too holy for a person to have a relationship with Him and there not be a radical change in who they are. This comes full circle to verse 1. Walk in a manner worthy of your confession. He breaks it down and says, negate all of your meanness. It's a word for malice, meanness, just being mean. No grudges, that's bitterness. No outbursts of anger, that's wrath. No simmering resentment, that's anger. No loud criticism, that's clamor. No abusive language, that's slander. And no ill will or meanness, that's malice. All meanness. I know this sounds a little bit elementary, but what Paul is saying here is don't be mean if you're a Christian. Christians are mean people. What kind of people are they? Verse 32. Be kind. I looked so hard to have some massive definition for you of kindness. I looked in all three different Greek dictionaries. You know what it means? Be nice. Be nice. Be kind. Be, be good. Be kind. Right after that, he says, tenderhearted. That means merciful. Feel what others are feeling. Experience what they are experiencing. Be tenderhearted. Have it affect your feelings. Care, in other words. Tenderhearted is another word for care. Not long ago, I went to visit someone who was in the hospital and they were, they were suffering. We spent some time together. We prayed together. We talked. I left the hospital and went out to the elevator and pushed the button, opened it up, walked in. I was by myself. And I realized that I was about to leave and go back to my life. And they were still laying in there suffering. And it reminded me of this verse. You don't have to stay in the hospital room the whole time, but you can care. What does care make you do? It makes you pray. It makes you follow up. It makes you tenderhearted. And then he says this, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Forgiveness truly is the secret sauce for Christian happiness. Forgive one another. Don't hold them accountable to the offenses that they've violated you by in the same way that God does not hold us accountable because he put all of our judgment, all of our accountability on his son at the cross. Forgiveness demands a humbling and difficult recognition. What is that? Just as God in Christ has forgiven you, he says, you will know how to forgive others if you think about how much God has forgiven you. The sins that you and I are called to forgive in others are not nearly as bad as the sins that we did for which God grants us forgiveness. 
We are way worse to God than anyone has ever been to us. And he forgave us. That's the point. We should realize that we are more like the worst sinner we can imagine than we ever are like God. By the way, remember we were talking about chapters? This is inextricably linked to the next chapter with the word therefore. Look, sneak ahead, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, whenever you see therefore in the Greek New, in the New Testament, it's like an equal sign. He's given you the mathematical formulation and then it equals or therefore. After all that we just studied in chapter 4, therefore, be imitators of God. Be like God. Walk like God. Live like God as beloved children. You say, well, that seems pretty transcendental and not attainable. And walk in love just as Christ. There's how you imitate God. Also loved you, gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God and a fragrant aroma. But let but immorality, sexual sin, any impurity or greed must not be even be named among you as is proper among the saints. You know, filthy and silly, filthiness and silly talk, coarse jesting. For this you know with certainty. And then he talks about the fact that if you have a profession, but you don't live out your profession, what he just laid out in chapter four, you will not inherit the kingdom of God, of Christ and God, which leads to number six, don't be deceived. Verse six, don't be deceived. You can think wrongly about this. Don't be deceived. Then he transitions in verse seven, says, now that you've been changed, don't participate, don't partake in sin with other sinners. Don't be called back into your former life. Verse seven, don't enjoy darkness as children of light. And then he's off to the races in chapter five. Oh, I love these chapter divisions. They are helpful, but they're not divinely inspired. Four and five are connected. Let's make sure we have that. So I backed up from this, and you can have dozens or more, but I, I have three takeaways that I put from my own heart in chapter four. These were really, really heavy on my heart as I was studying this. Number one, the gospel has expectations and implications. The gospel has expectations and implications. After three chapters of the gospel, Paul says, if you believe this, live like it. There's the expectation. Implications are the rest of chapter four, five, and six. This is what it means. There are ways to change. There are ways to live and think that are different than your unbelieving life. The gospel has expectations and implications. We should pay attention. Number two, God has graciously laid out a plan for personal change. He's graciously laid out a plan excuse me, for personal change. He didn't just say change. He said, here's how to change. He holds our hand. He keeps the training wheels on. Here's what to put off. Specifically, here's how to do it. Here's how to think rightly about the gospel, about me, about the worldview, <clears throat> about the kingdom of God, and here's how to live and act and put what to put on. He doesn't leave us feeling for the light switch of our sanctification in the dark. 
He outlines it for us. He tells us how to do it. And then, obviously, number three, change is anchored in living, here's on quotation marks, just as Christ lived. Change is anchored in living just as Christ lived. We forgive just as God in Christ has forgiven us. We walk in love, verse, chapter 5, verse 2, just as Christ loved us. We learn Christ. He's the object of our faith. Be careful when you have faith in faith instead of faith in Christ. He, He, Jesus. What is Paul saying? Colossians 3, 4 is our life. Christ is our life. We sing it all the time. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. I mean, in a sense, that's not true. I have a car. I have a lot of things besides Christ. What Jordan is saying in that lyric is, all I have that is really sustaining and satisfying is the person of Christ. And he's right. Then the next phrase, hallelujah. Jesus is my what? Life. Well, I hope he's your life. If he is, this resonates with you and it reminds us and it resets and recalibrates. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, what a great day you've come to church. We would love to introduce you to Jesus who will forgive you of your sins, give you meaning and purpose in your life, give you hope for death. Who wants to say no to that? If you have any questions about that, our prayer is going to be open in a moment. Steve Schulte will be there with his wife, Deb. We'd love to talk to you about that.